Good morning, everybody. How are you this morning? Pretty good? Pretty awesome? How are you, graduates? You feeling good? Like, why am I sitting up front? We want to honor you. And uh, so today's sermon is geared to everybody. It's according to what we've been doing. For those of you who may be watching online or those of you who are new here, uh, here at Heights Christian Church, one of the things that we're doing is we're going through the Word of God in five years' period of time. And how we're doing that is we read together as a congregation six days a week. And then when we come together on Sunday, the sermon is based upon either in whole or in part from what we've read during the week so that we get a deeper understanding of the Word of God and understanding of of how this faith works itself out in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we do. And right now we're going through the Psalms. And we're not going through it in a traditional way. So if you do not have a bookmark, we have bookmarks at the information uh, desk. We would love to give you one of those. And you'll just match the date with the date that it is, right? So today is the 23rd. Tomorrow will be the 24th. And we'll have readings for the 24th. And you can just follow along with what we're doing. Um, we would encourage you to do that because we're doing a non-traditional approach. And this is like, I believe, our fourth or fifth week that we're doing uh, Psalms of David. And so we are continuing to do that now. And yet at the same time, it's a graduate service. And so this message, these Psalms, the Psalm we're going to cover today has great significance for you graduates great significance for you parents who are releasing these graduates to the world around you. Today's sermon is titled, Is Your God Big Enough? Is Your God Big Enough? I want to read an article that came from the Christian Post that simply says this. It dropped on Wednesday. 43% of millennials, this is the title of it, by the way, 43% of millennials don't know don't care, don't believe God exists. Study. I want to read the article to you for context. Just 26% of Gen X and 16% of millennials believe that when they die, they will go to heaven only because they confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior, compared to nearly half of the generation before them, a new study has found. The American Worldview Inventory 2021, a survey of the philosophy of life on American adults from Arizona Christian University, assessed the worldviews of four generations. Millennials, born 1984 to 2002, Gen X, 1965 to 1983, Babyboomers, 1946 to 1964, and Builders, 1927 to 1945. Researchers found that among other generations, A staggering 90% of builders believe that you treat others as you want them to treat you, while less than half of millennials agree. 
Additionally, 43% of millennials stated that they either don't know, don't care, or don't believe God exists compared to 28% of boomers and 44% of millennials believe that Satan is real and influential compared to 64% of boomers. The study also found that overall, younger Americans are significantly more likely than the previous two generations to embrace horoscopes as a guide and karma as a life principle, to see getting even with others as defensible, to accept evolution over creation, and to view owning property as fostering economic injustice. On spiritual matters, Americans younger than 55 are far more likely to distrust the Bible and to believe God is uninvolved in people's lives. Interestingly, a majority of Americans call themselves Christian, ranging from 57% of millennials to 83% of builders. Researchers warn that the beliefs and behaviors of younger Americans, especially millennials, threaten to reshape the nation's religious parameters beyond recognition. In fact, this radical spiritual revolution has created a generation seeking a reimagined world without God, the Bible, or churches, they wrote. Commenting on the study, George Barna, CRC Director of Research, said that Gen X and the Millennials have solidified dramatic changes in the nation's central beliefs and lifestyles, adding that the result is a culture in which core institutions, including churches, and basic ways of life are continually being radically redefined. The American World Inventory corroborates an earlier study from Barna that found two-thirds of teens and young adults, 65%, agree that many religions can lead to eternal life, compared to 58% of teens and young adults surveyed in 2018, excuse me, just three years ago. Additionally, 31% of teens and young adults strongly agree that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society compared to just 25% in 2018. Recent survey data released by Gallup found that one in six Gen Z adults identify as LGBT, the highest percentage of any generation in history, and that number is likely to continue to increase. Jacob Bland, the new president and CEO for Youth for Christ, told the Christian Post that despite the challenges facing today's young people, he looks forward to the future with optimism. Teens today are facing crisis like never before, but it's often in darkness that light shines the brightest, he said, to enter into a disciple-making relationship where you're introducing a kid to unconditional love that maybe they've never even considered, showing them the goodness and love modeled in Jesus. There's a lot of hope in that. Jesus has a way of being new and fresh for the circumstances of today, and he's certainly doing that, Bland added. It's a pretty stark realization. I think if we talk to our seniors, this type of world wouldn't surprise them. I think it would surprise more of us as the parents and grandparents. We don't realize how quickly things have changed in our world. These percentage points that we're looking at that just three years ago have shifted nearly 10 percentage points. Used to take an entire generation for it to shift that much. Now we've done it in three years. We are seeing a huge challenge for you as seniors for us as a society, 
as it pertains to living out our faith. And I believe the honest question comes down to, is your God big enough? Because I believe that what we see in our society, this, this precipitous movement, if you will, that we could probably lean back and say, you know, go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s. And if you'd asked those that grew up in the 60s about the 90s, they would have said things have changed so much and it's so much worse. And we look at the next 30 years that have gone forward and we're going, oh my goodness, if they only knew. And yet, what we hear from this article and what the trends are is it's only going to accelerate in our society. I believe that our current graduates and those that are growing up now have the opportunity to create revival through a commitment to Jesus Christ that is radical that the world doesn't know and that their generation, quite frankly, doesn't know. But it's only going to happen if their God is big enough. This week we read a number of psalms, but the one that we're going to focus on is one that we know very well, Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 139. We're going to read it as a whole, and then we're going to break it down into pieces. Because David, in this psalm, as he is praising God, opens up the door to understanding why a big God is important for you and I to believe in. So, if you will, starting in verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. For me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sin. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my actions and my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we look at this psalm of David, one that, that we know well, 
one that if we know anything of the Psalms, this is one of the ones that we go to. I just know this Psalm. There are three things that are mentioned within this Psalm that talk about the nature of God. Three things that I believe that leads to unbelief is when we try to diminish or replace these three things by man-made ideas or just deny them altogether. They're God's omniscience, which means that God is all-knowing. It's God's omnipresence, meaning that he's everywhere at once. And God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. These three things are mentioned right here in this psalm. And I believe 100% that as we see the diminishment of these three characteristics of God, not by God himself, for he's always these things, but in our minds, this is what leads to an unbelieving heart that divorces ourselves from the God who created us and wants to redeem us in Jesus Christ. So we're going to take these one at a time. God's omniscience. First six verses of Psalm 139 really go over that together. So if you'll read again with me. O Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind him before, you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. When we think of knowledge today, you know what we don't think of? We don't think of a personal knowledge. Not like this, right? We think of information, don't we? How many of you, let's just be honest, I'm, I'm going to raise my hand too because I'm in the same boat. How many of you, when you don't know something, your first instinct is to look it up on Google or YouTube. Raise your hand. You and I have been trained, and, and let me just be fair right now, because the truth of the matter is that having Google, having YouTube, this repository of information is not a bad thing. I like having this information at my fingertips. But it threatens to usurp God's role of the one who has all knowledge. We think of all the algorithms. How many of you know that your phone is spying on you? Raise your hand. How many of you start talking sometimes and then you're looking on your phone, on your Facebook, or on your YouTube, or, or whatever, and all of a sudden a commercial comes up and it's right what you were talking about. They're, they're listening. They, they know where you live. Because you enabled your location. Right? This idea of Google and YouTube, while a tremendous tool, threatens to usurp God's proper role of being the one who knows all things. Right? It's almost, I mean, seriously, if we go back to Genesis and we go back to the Garden of Eden and we talk about Adam and Eve and they're walking in the garden and the temptation of the devil is this because there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is your original Google and YouTube right here. Because God planted a tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
and told them, don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. Sin's going to enter into this world because of your disobedience to my command, and there's going to be death where there has been no death. And what does Satan do? Satan comes up to Eve and says, did God really say? He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. And Eve, when she looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for gaining knowledge, took it and ate and turned to Adam. Adam's not in a faraway place. Adam is standing by Eve. He's not off the hook. He's the dumb guy standing there going, "Uh uh-huh, she took it. I'm going to eat it too. No objections. Please understand, that's what's going on here. And they took it. Did they gain knowledge? Yes. Immediately they knew they were naked, right? They gained knowledge because the fruit does what it's supposed to do. It's the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to be like God. They took it. They knew it. And then they hid in the bushes. You know why? Because they were naked. They didn't know how to handle that information. And there's some irony there, right? Because then what happens after that? We see the voice of God, a pre-incarnate Christ, walking in the Garden of Eden, and they're hiding from him. They jump into the bushes, and they say, wait a second, where are you? And he says, I'm in the bushes. I didn't want you to see me because we were naked. And immediately God says, who told you you were naked? Not that that wasn't true. But it was a piece of information that was unknown to them beforehand. And there's an irony to it because with God being there, they had access. The voice of God walking in the Garden of Eden, they could have asked him anything. Absolutely anything. They had better than the repository of this idea that they could shortcut this method of what knowledge was by eating this fruit by asking God himself. Is that any different than you and I going to YouTube and Google for something that God has said in his word? See, we replace shortcuts don't we? I mean, we even use Google and YouTube and our phone apps. Let's just be honest. We have our phone apps. Instead of actually reading and knowing the Word of God, we shortcut it so that we can learn this verse here to get a gotcha moment from somebody else when it's not about that. When David starts talking about God and his knowledge, he said his knowledge of David himself was so complete that even before he said something on his lips, God knew it completely. I don't care how many algorithms and how smart the algorithms are for Facebook or YouTube or whatnot, they're never going to know you personally. But God does. And we don't think of God quite in this way. That he knows us so completely. That he cares for us so much. That he knows what's in our minds and in our hearts. Even before we say it, all of our days are known before him. 
We see this exercised with Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus heals a paralytic. He has four friends who come and dig through the ceiling and, and put him down. And when Jesus sees their faith, he tells them, the man who's on the mat, your sins are forgiven you. Verses 6 through 9 say this. Listen very carefully to what it says here. And now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? And he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take up your mat and walk? Which, honestly, both of those things only God can do. And yet Jesus is exercising This idea of omniscience, that at the moment that the teachers of the law were thinking these things, it says immediately Jesus knew in his spirit exactly what they were thinking. This is a type of knowledge that that David is talking about that God has of you and me right here in Psalm 139. And recognizing that God is the God of all knowledge We should be running to him a whole lot more than we run to Google or YouTube. Right? We really should be. As great of of a tool as the internet is and that we might use in our day-to-day lives, it pales in comparison to the God of the universe who created all things and knows all things and already knows you better than you'll ever know yourself. Sincerely. Sees the end from the beginning. Do we really believe that? Because I believe we don't. I believe as a society, as we rely more and more upon man's technology, it takes away from the knowledge of God. When we are more dependent upon man's technology to provide answers for us, we become less dependent on even caring what God has said in his word. And it indicts every one of us when our first reaction to a problem that is addressed within the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and how he has called his people to live, or how he's told us to evaluate the society around us, when our first reaction is to go to Google and YouTube rather than the Word of God, we kind of tip our hands that we don't really think God knows as much as he does. And I think that these attitudes have filtered their way through our society through these generations. It's why you see these percentages go down. And so the first area is that of omniscience. But it's not the only area that he talks about. The second area that he talks about is that of God being omnipresent. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. 
Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, the second area where I think we struggle is this idea that God is omnipresent. Parents, how many of you guys are worried about your child going off to another land? Going out to Oklahoma, Montana, Missouri, Texas, the greater Albuquerque area. How many of you are scared and worried about your children? About you not being able to be around them, to advise them, to help them? How many of you are concerned, those of you who already have college graduates or kids that have already left your home, how many of you are already concerned concerning the decisions they're making where they are now? A little bit more honesty from the ones who have got them gone, right? Like they're gone. We're experiencing it. The other ones are like, I'm going to be I'm gonna be a good Christian. I'm not worried at all. Liar. Here's the problem with that. And, and I suffer from it too. We forget God's everywhere. As a people of God, we forget that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. When David talks about it, wherever I go, there you are. Right? Jesus said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. Who does he say that to? Everyone who follows him, which means what? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere the believer is. Correct? Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Well, his disciples went everywhere. And so we have an omnipresent God. The one who we can pray for people who are halfway around the world, halfway across the country, in another state, in another city, in another situation. And if we truly believe that God is omnipresent, then our prayers make a difference to the one that we're praying for, doesn't it? Do you really believe that he hears you? How would we pray different if we truly believe that? I have to admit One of the hard things for me to do, because I'm a control freak. How many of you are control freaks? Raise your hand. When you are a control freak, guess what? You're saying, because I'm not omnipresent, I'm not sure I can trust God with this. Right? God, would you do this quite my way? I mean, I just, I want to be, you know, the controller here. I want to make sure you're doing this exactly the way that I would do it. I want to make sure that you're really there. You're really affecting their lives. Guys, if you and I truly believe that God was there, we would pray with a whole lot more boldness and urgency for people who are far removed from us because though we are not there, God is. And his hand is not too short to reach them. But you and I, how many times has distance been the reason for which we didn't pray? We didn't pray? 
We didn't think about praying. We didn't think it would make a difference. And by minimizing God, not because God has minimized himself, but because we have minimized God, we make it easier to believe or not to believe that he's there. John chapter 3, I believe that Jesus kind of reveals our heart in this matter, right? We show our belief or our non-belief concerning this um, uh, omnipresence by the way that we act. And so Jesus has just said, you know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? Of course, nobody likes to read verse 18. Verse 18 is like the redheaded stepchild of John three sixteen and three seventeen. And it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not, believed in, does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We don't quote John 3.18 quite as much as the other two, do we? But then it moves to verse 19. It's a very interesting verse that Jesus talks about from 19 to 21. And he says this, this is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness Instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whenever whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Why do you and I instinctually hide when we're doing something that we know is not right. A number of years ago, I did a, a sermon, and I had some slides up of all of these uh, adult video stores. The one thing that you will notice from these adult video stores or these strip clubs is they have no windows or the windows are blacked out because it's done in the darkness. Even to this day, you can travel around town. I don't suggest you go in there, but if you want to do your own survey of it, take a look. It's still just as true today. Why? It's in the deep, dark corners, right? Where do drug deals take place? They're just taking place out in the open. I mean, are we that far gone as a society that we don't care? No, they're happening in back alleys, right? They're happening in these corners where they're hoping nobody is looking. When do you... Children do bad things around the house. Are you not trying to hide it from your parents? Right? I don't want them to see me doing this. So I'm closing my door. I'm going to lock my door, and I never lock my door, right? Because I don't want my parents to know what's going on here. Or if you're by some chance by yourself at home, and your parents are gone, and you're doing something you're not supposed to do, are you always constantly on the lookout? I don't, I, okay, speak from experience, okay? I did this growing up when I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. I'm always looking out to see if my father was coming home so that I could keep this hidden, right? And all that reveals to you and me, number one, is that we're pretty evil people, right? The second thing is this. When we are so blatant in trying to hide our bad deeds from everybody else, right? 
we really don't believe that God sees us doing those things or we wouldn't do them at all. If we really believed in a God who was ever present in our lives, we would realize that every sin that we do, every sin, and I'm just as guilty as everybody else, right? Every sin that we do is not behind God's back. It's in front of his face. David said, you know, even if I go into the darkness, you are there. If I try to go to the heights or I try to go to the depths, you are there. If I try to hide in my room in the closet and hope nobody sees it, you are there. This is not something that is done behind God's back. This is done in front of his face. And when we hide it from other people in hopes to hide it, our our bad actions that we know are not right, what we're really doing is testifying against ourselves that we really don't believe God is there to begin with as we're doing these bad things. And it's emboldened us to do more and more bad things. Because in the end, while we may fear our parents or our friends and their opinion of what we do and say, we have lost all fear that God is truly there and cares about what we do and say. The omnipresence of God can be, if you guys watched the video from earlier this week when we were doing our devotional time together, can be the most comforting thing for a believer knowing that God is actually someplace halfway around the world and that our prayers can reach them because we have a God who can reach them where they are no matter what. Or it can be the scariest thing in the world if we have so far deceived ourselves to think that we can hide things from God, that we're doing sin behind his back when we're really doing it in front of his face. All of us, myself included. And when we tear down these attributes of God, of who he really is, from our mind, it opens up the door to dismiss him altogether from our lives. Finally, The omnipotence of God. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My name was not hidden from you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, it's really interesting to me 
Because this last passage might be saying, I don't see how we're talking about the power of God. But God is the one who created all things. He created into being how you and I would be perpetually created. He created the family, Adam and Eve, to have children and children's children. And so when we're reading in verse 13, we're reading of the creative action ultimately of God, right? This is what he has done. The one who has created the world and everything that's in it all-powerful. And the problem with this is, as I believe that the omnipotence of God is the one most frontally attacked by our culture and our society. They're the ones that come up with these illogical incongruities to try and shake your faith. These questions that come out. Can God create a rock that's so big that he can't lift it himself? That's an illogical incongruity, right? And, and why is that? Why do, they, why do they create stuff like that? Can God create a square circle? It's an illogical incongruity. And why are those things said? Because if he's God, he can do anything. Right? And if, he, if he's not God, he can't do those things. But those are illogical incongruities. Omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. He can do all things that are able to be done. He cannot do that which cannot be done because it's an incongruity. It makes no sense. Making a rock so big that God can't lift it is stupid. Right? Making a square circle is stupid. Right? But all it tries to do is attack the idea that God is not so powerful. And so to take down a peg in our minds that God is being all-powerful. And they'll look at things like this in this chapter of Scripture right here. And they'll look at a verse such as, um, When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And they'll say, well, you take the Bible literally, don't you? What does that mean, woven together? We already know you're not woven together. Are you an orc? Those of you who are Lord of the Rings, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Lord of the Rings reference. Those of you who are not, you should watch the movies. I'm just saying. Um, are you an orc, right? Because it says you're woven together in the earth. Are you telling me that by David's time, as a matter of fact, by Adam and Eve's time, they didn't know where babies came from? Really? Really? It's like, <laughs> what happened? No, they knew where babies came from. They also know that God is the one who did that. We're looking at poetic literature right here. A song. How many of our songs that we, we sing today would make no sense if you took them quote-unquote literally, but you know what they're meaning by it. It's the same thing here. God created us in the secret place, in the place of the womb of our mothers, using our mother and father together to create life, to come into this world. Miles about to have that awesome opportunity. I kept wondering earlier this week, I was like, if, if that means you're a doctorate and the baby was in your womb, does that mean the baby's a doctor too? Anyway, so I don't know. That was just in my head. I don't know why. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, something for all of you to ponder. That might be one of those illogical incongruities, okay? <laughs> right? Of course, we wouldn't think that. But what we, what we have in our society is this frontal attack, Right? On this idea that if we take the Bible literally, well, we're going to take all these figurative passages. They're obviously figurative. It means I read it literally, right? That I know when it's 
it's allegorizing something. And I know when it's being exaggerative because we live in an exaggerative society today. Very sarcastic, right? How many of you have majored in sarcasm? Raise your hand. How many of you could recognize sarcasm if somebody else said it? Raise your hand. How many of you would know that if they're being sarcastic, they're not being literal? Raise your hand. Why can't we just assume that we got the same thing in the Bible? Because to do so, they're attacking, whether you believe it or not, the omnipotence of God. Because here it's talking about an act of creation. And the second part of this is actually talking about justice. And now we get into something that isn't an illogical incongruity when it's talking about the power of God. But we talk about the problem of evil. How many of you hate evil in this world? Raise your hand. All of us do, right? If God were so powerful, why couldn't he just take care of it? I would say that is the biggest question that many people who do not believe in Jesus or believe in God put up against him. And it's a direct assault on God's power, right? That he cannot bring under his authority the power of all things that are wrong. And see, this problem is for the atheist, it's not for the Christian. And the Christian needs to understand that. For the Christian, the idea is real simple. If I believe that the earth and all that there is in it was the end-all, be-all, and our life right here on earth was the end-all, be-all, it comes with an atheistic premise that everything has to be taken care of right here during our lifetime, every justice taken care of. I'm not promised that anywhere in the Bible. I don't know if you guys have read the Word of God, But as we've been going through it, the last thing I see is some sort of promise that justice on this earth is going to happen. As a matter of fact, what we see is a whole lot of injustice and a whole lot more of injustice going to happen. Jesus said that if you love me, if you know, no, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Whether you did right or whether you did wrong, they're going to persecute you. Nobody likes claiming those promises, right? God, I just want to promise, claim a promise of long life and happiness and wealth because I'm wanting to serve you. And I just, I'm claiming those verses. Nobody claims, God, bring persecution, God. Because you promised that I would be like you and you receive persecution. So in order for me to know that I'm like you, God, send that persecution my way. Nobody's like, I claim that one in the name of Jesus. We're like, oh, Jesus, please help me through this. Because you and I were never promised a justice that would simply be earthly, but would be a justice for all time. It was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. That the forgiveness of sin for you and me, for all who would believe in Jesus, is sufficient on that cross for every single person, no matter what you've done. And yet, there's a day of judgment coming. Because at some point, God's going to say, time's up. And when God says, time's up, that'll be time up here on this world. And after that has taken place, we read in Revelation chapter 20, what happens in the end. Starting in verse 11. It says, then I saw... 
a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Perfect justice. Right there. For all time, God is not slack concerning his promises. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so not believing in Jesus has eternal consequences because then you will be judged according to what you have done. And all of those things that we just talked about, his omniscience, his omnipresence will become a very real reality for you at that judgment seat where he has provided the sacrifice for you and for me to be made right in his sight through Jesus Christ, not through our own, but because of what he's done on the cross. And everybody who has accepted that and has followed Christ will find their name in the Lamb's book of life. And though they should be guilty, it has already been meted out upon the cross, and God has brought justification for you and me through his blood. For for all who reject it, there's no sacrifice for sin that's left. And you stand on your own before God to be judged. And all of these people who say God is not righteous because he doesn't judge evil will forever understand for all of eternity that God does judge evil. And there's a once and for all that it's going to happen. And it happened on the cross for forgiveness of sins. And for those who haven't, we have this final judgment for you where you will pay for your own sins because you've rejected his sacrifice. And those in hell and in those in heaven will forever know that God is not only perfectly powerful to be able to bring all things under the authority of Christ, but perfectly just in doing so. It's these three areas that we look at the nature of God that we have compromised our understanding of who God is. And if we don't see him as omniscient, if we don't see him as omnipresent, and if we don't see him as omnipotent, we will find ourselves serving a God far less powerful that really isn't God at all, not worthy to be praised, and easily discarded, as our culture has done. This is why, after affirming These three things about God in Psalm 139 and saying, hey, do I not hate those who hate you? It's a hard thing to say, but you know what? There are certain things we should hate. We should hate those things that are against God. We should not buy into them just because the world does. God is to be our authority more than Google, more than YouTube. 
We should recognize that we are in his presence at all times. That should be a huge comfort for us in times of trial, in times of need, in times of wanting to reach other people for Jesus. We can start right now on our knees and know that it's going to be heard by a God who is already there and is powerful enough to bring any circumstance under his authority for his glory and for his namesake. That's a God I want searching my heart. That's a God I want conforming me, as it says in Romans 8, into the image of his son. This is what David asks at the end. Verses 23 and 24 when he says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me to the way of everlasting. See, that type of knowledge will bring you to Jesus. That type of understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. The power of Christ to forgive you and I of sin. The power of Christ to be wherever it is that you need him to be. Because he's God and he's already there. To bring any circumstance under his authority. Not your wanted outcome. Don't confuse what you think would be the best thing for you with what God wants for your life. Those might be two totally different things, and you have to come into submission of a God who is greater than you, knows you better than you know yourself, and has all power in his authority to be able to submit to him and his will even when you don't understand it. Only if your God is that big is he worthy to be praised. Only if your God is that big is he going to be enough to sustain you for whatever is going to come your way. Only if our God is truly that big can we build that foundation up in this next generation of graduates, this next generation of children who are here because we will allow him to have free reign and glory over our lives. Do you think that might be something that will change our society for the better? Because I do. I really do. But it starts with you. It starts with everyone in this room. And it starts with you graduates. We have a God who's worthy to be praised. We have a God who we don't always think about in the way that he ought to be thought about. We have a God who has shown his mercy and his love for us in Jesus Christ. And we need to start believing in his power, his glory, who he is more than we believe in our power, our glory, and who we are. Do you stand with me? I pray for real that your God is big enough. And maybe you're like me. I know I'm going through this myself and as I'm Reminded of these scriptures that are here. I'm convicting myself. I'm like, God, I, I've got to trust that you're omnipresent. That's, that's the one I'm going to just be honest with. That's the one that I sometimes struggle with. It affects my prayer life. 
But that doesn't change his nature. And my prayer is that you guys will believe what God has said about himself. You will know his word better than you know the things of this world. That you will recognize that he is there with you. And that he has the power to bring you through anything that you're going to face in this life. And the beauty is he wants to do it because he loves you. And he sent his son to die on the cross for you. That he might be with you forever. That's an encouraging thought. He wants you to share that goodness, his goodness with the world around you. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for these graduates. I want to thank you, O Lord, for who you are. I thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that you are omniscient. You know all things, Lord. I thank you that you're omnipresent, that you are here in this place. You are here whether I feel you or not. Because that's the nature of who you are. And you are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. You can bring all things and will bring all things under your authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will happen. Lord, help us be a people who stand on the authority of who you are because of what you said you are, Lord. Help us not diminish that, dear Heavenly Father. Help us to always be reminded of who you are and to recognize that this world has nothing in comparison to who you are what you've done for us in Jesus. I thank you for these graduates. I pray that they will stand strong and firm on the God who is and not diminish you just because the culture wants to. May they reveal you in all of your awesome glory to those who need to know Jesus. And let's see our culture change, Lord. Help us as a people of God, all of us, be recommitted to realizing that our prayers matter. Be committed to realizing that you, O Lord, are not silent, that you hear us when we cry to you, and you are powerful enough to answer even though we're not there. Remind us of these truths so that our faith will rely upon you and not ourselves. And forgive us when it has. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.